the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, the last few public statements made by Nancy Pelosi is making me wonder, what did they do with Nancy Pelosi? (laughs) This has got to be an imposter. I mean, first she very forcefully states that impeachment would not be good for the country and it would have to be bipartisan and compelling and things of this sort, which certainly seems to run contrarian from a lot of the rhetoric that we've been hearing from the Democrat side of the aisle since January. And now she says Medicare for all would be worse than the current system with the tagline plus how do you pay for that? Oh my goodness. Now, if this is not perhaps a firm denouncement of some of the rhetoric from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, then I don't know what is. All right, let's dive a little bit deeper, shall we? Um, Speaking of AOC, you're probably aware in previous administrations and presidential campaigns that there was a deal. Then, of course, in the 1930s, along came FDR with the New Deal. Now we have the Green New Deal, a top-down apparently my way or the highway approach to energy and climate change that seems to think you can simply wave a magic wand and presto, wind, hydropower, and solar, the so-called renewable energy sector, will magically replace oil, coal, natural gas, and nuclear energy in an instant or in 10 years, whichever is the equivalent to an instant in this case. Um, So let's find out. With some insights, we're joined by the Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and Senior Fellow at Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University, Pete Peterson. Pete, it's always great to have you with us. Great to be with you again. Uh, wow. Do you, do you join my, my sense of shock and awe? Nancy Pelosi's sounding, you know, darn right middle of the road lately. <laughs> <laughs> well, the middle of the road has shifted pretty far to the left, you know. Yeah, so, this is uh, true. I, I think that... Uh, what she's experiencing here as, uh, is what it's like to be a leader of a party that is veering so far to the left. And so when she says something that's, that's uh, kind of rational, it's, it's, uh, it's a window into how hard she's having to pull the leaders of her party uh, back to a place of uh, sane conversation around public policy. There, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect here. I mean, if much of this is sort of um, uh, tuning up for the 2020 race, where the notion is that you're going to take the, the middle section of America, uh, the independents, the, uh, I guess back in the day we call them Reagan Dem- Democrats, I guess today they're Trump Democrats, where you're going to attract them and move from the Trump side of the equation clear over to this far, far left end of the left, which, at least in my political 
experience is the furthest left we've ever been. I mean, it's one thing for people like Bernie Sanders to moose over the notion of uh, free education for all, but now we're talking about free health care for all. We've added into that, uh, let's guarantee jobs, and oh, by the way, when the jobs do come, uh, if there's even an inkling of a state having negotiated to bring them to their locality, like in the case of Jeff Bezos and Amazon, I just discussed it with the guest that was on before you, well, we can't certainly have anything like that, so we have to clamp down on that real strong. I, I've got to get first your your opinion. It just at a level, I'm I'm kind of going against my own advice because for the longest time I've said, look, this this woman is a um, an largely un or undereducated individual who seems to spew out rhetoric simply to get a reaction from her base. There's not much there there, and yet at the end of the day. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez seems to be getting more attention than Joe McCarthy at a young Communist Party meeting. What do you think? Well, I think you're right. You know, we're, we're, we're in a moment here in our politics when populist movements are dominating the democratic republics across the West. Uh, obviously, we've seen this in the United States with uh, President Trump's ascension to the presidency uh, back in 2016, but we knew even back then the signs were there on the left that there was going to be a populist insurgency working its way through the Democratic Party. Uh, obviously, it started with Bernie Sanders there, but it's only continued. And when you look at the crop of at least announced Democratic Party candidates, you're absolutely right, Craig. This is the most left-leaning crop of uh, Democratic candidates for presidency that we've, we've ever seen. And they're getting a great deal of attention, and not to suggest that attention equates um, a a sense of uh, validation, but after a while you have to wonder. You do, but again, I I think um, sometimes as conservatives, and I I certainly call myself a conservative, we can get too bottled up on uh, what the facts are of certain policy proposals and believe as long as we have the the right arguments intellectually, we're going to win the day. And what people like AOC are proving is that we're not in that moment right now. We're, we're in a moment where people are making completely outlandish statements from a policy perspective. But if they're able to do it in a way that can be considered authentic, which, again, is such a powerful phrase for younger voters and, and many on the left, uh, that's that's what you need to be successful politically. People vote for a lot of different reasons. And uh, for some, the feeling that you're being heard, that you're uh, running as an outsider, uh, that you want to turn over anything that's big. Uh, these are very appealing themes in American politics. And certainly many on the left are are taking that uh, in a direction that is making government the big thing in the equation. And to be sure, these are very uncharted waters. I mean, there's one thing to say that, well, you know, it's not business, or in this case, politics as usual. But historically, we have traditionally believed, as you suggested a moment ago, Pete, that in the end, the truth will win out. People will see the, the, the logic disconnect from some of these proposals. It's one thing to say free education, but then somebody says, well, wait a minute now, when you say free education, 
education, do you mean the teachers are working for free? Oh, no, they're going to get paid. Well, they're going to be in buildings that won't require maintenance or heat or light. Oh, no, that'll be needed. So then you're essentially not saying that it's free education. It's just free to you, but somebody else is going to pay. And historically, traditionally, you could you know sort of bring that logic into the conversation, and level-headed individuals would say, oh, yeah, that does become a problem. Here, though, they don't seem to want to be distracted by the facts. Am I right? You're absolutely right, Craig. And we we saw it here in California, right? We can remember when the single payer bill was was put forth in the legislature and the legislative analyst office, which is this nonpartisan policy research group, uh, estimated that the cost of a statewide single payer bill in, in, in California would cost about 400 billion with a B dollars. Now that's twice as much as the entire general fund budget. And even that reality did not prevent Democrats in the state legislature from passing it. And so again, you're looking at the the power of uh, these heartstring type ideals around free health care and free college education and the government will take care of you. And even the word socialism, I think, is appealing to some. It connotes a feeling that it's very social and, and we're all in this together. But really underlying it, as you well know and talk about on your show all the time, is that these phrases underneath them have real significant consequences to everyone, not just those who would benefit from them. Yeah, and we'll be all in this together as our collective boat sinks together. We'll be all paddling together uh, as we're as we're drowning. I want to spend some time in uh, the next segment, Pete, walking through one of her big party platform uh, talking points. And this, of course, as I alluded to in my opening remarks, is the Green New Deal, which at certain layers, again, it's got that warm, fuzzy feeling to it. Though, in my opinion, I'm certainly no expert, but in my opinion, some of the goals that it sets out are so patently ridiculous that in some corners, they're not even taking this thing seriously, knowing that this is like asking for the tooth fairy to leave a billion dollars in cash underneath your pillow. If we knew that were possible, I'd yank all my teeth out tonight. But it's not. Let's find out what makes this the equivalent of the tooth fairy leaving your kid a billion dollars. We're visiting today with the dean of the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University, Pete Peterson. Pete is also a senior fellow at the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. We're talking through... What should we say? The phenomenon? I guess that's a good word. The phenomenon of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and how she seemingly can, as we suggested a moment ago, sort of harness this truth doesn't matter. It's not politics as usual. It's about the feel-good sense. Harness the power of all of this to oftentimes make outlandish proposals and in the meanwhile, get everybody else tied up in knots. We're going to talk about the so-called Green New Deal. Is it a Green New Deal or just a raw deal. That and more as our conversation with Pete Peterson from Pepperdine University continues right after this. Let's get a look at traffic for you right now at five, I'm sorry, six. I've got the time. This time thing has really messed me up. At five, I say it's six and at six, I say it's five. It's 15 minutes after the hour. That's the safe way out. (laughs) You can pick the hour. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting today with Pete Peterson. Pete is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. And you get, by the way, more information on the web about his work and the fine school at pepperdine.edu. That's pepperdine.edu. And if uh, Pete will linger for a moment, we'll have him share a little bit uh, toward the end of our conversation about uh, what he does there at Pepperdine. But we've been talking about the um, the so-called Green New Deal put forward by the uh, junior a member of Congress from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And this Green New Deal, as I understand it, Pete, essentially, and I'm, I'm going to sort of simplify this for the sake of uh, my question, is that uh, she's calling for a 100% transition of the nation's electric power grid from where we're at right now, which is a combination of hydro and there's, uh, I think, a little bit of solar power, wind power, um, certainly a great degree of natural gas, even some, I think there's one nuclear power plant left, um, and oil, She's and some coal. She's calling for all of that to be completely changed out so that 10 years from now, we will have phased out oil from the transportation sector, and in the energy sector that powers our homes, it's all going to essentially be solar, wind, and hydro. Is that a pretty accurate at least description of what she's proposing? Yes, but it, uh, Craig, it all begins on the supposition that uh, the UN panel on climate change has set forth this date about 12 years in the future when apparently we will reach reach a a so-called tipping point in our climate that we will not be able to alleviate uh, the implications of global warming Uh, and at that point the uh, earth itself will continue to heat up to a place that will eventually be unlivable and i think that needs to be understood in this conversation as really the driving point, because so much of the energy that AOC and others around the Green New Deal are bringing to this is to say that this is about saving humanity. And that makes the political deliberation around public policy extremely difficult. Um, and so I think the, the first piece that really needs to be understood about this, and she said this in recent remarks, that unless somebody else comes up with a plan, she's the boss, she said at one point, <laughs> um, that, that she's essentially saying if, if nobody addresses this, she's the only one that is going to save the planet. That's the, that's the inference that she's making there. Now, the specifics of the Green New Deal are very much, as you say, that there is a a uh, a dramatic reduction and transition away from fossil fuels and to so-called renewable or sustainable forms of energy. Now, how this is going to play in fields like air travel or uh, electricity more broadly or what we're going to do in regions that really cannot be serviced by renewables, whether it be wind or sun or not, explained here, and there's a whole lot of technology that is rumored to be on the drawing boards, but has not happened, uh, but is necessary to even make some of this a reality, which is the other part of this, Craig, is that this depends on so much technology being created and realized and disseminated uh, that just has not happened yet. And so it really, as it stands today, it is an almost complete 
farce. So there's a fundamental disconnect here then between that we ought to or what we'd like to versus what we actually can. And it seems to me just based on the timetable here, uh, if everything is falling apart in 12 years, that you're going to magically in 10 years accomplish all these goals just in the nick of time to suddenly reverse from the tipping point seems to be a tad bit on the unrealistic side not least of which is whether or not there is the capacity to be able to harness enough of this to replace all of these typical traditional energy sources for the entire planet and do it in 10 years, which is, you and I know, uh, when you consider the fact that it took, you know, years and years and years to even get us to the point of understanding what electricity did, let alone the ability to generate it, uh, how she thinks this is all going to be done in 10 years is certainly remarkable. It is, and of course... Craig, the other part of this is even if all the ideals of the Green New Deal were realized for the United States, we're not the greatest so-called polluter in the world, right? What do we do about developing nations and certainly nations like China, which are far greater polluters and contributing greenhouse gases to the, to the issues related uh, or purportedly related to climate change? This doesn't, the Green New Deal doesn't answer any of those things. And so, that's that's another part of this as well, is if we're looking at issues that are global and we're putting together this radical proposal for one country, uh, how much of an impact would it actually have if all the ideals were realized? And I, I'm afraid to say that it really, really wouldn't be a lot. And it would seem to me that um, she has um, rarely, if ever, ventured out of the United States to visit places like China like India, and even many parts of Russia that are entirely to this day reliant upon things like coal for cooking, coal for heating, uh, the notion of having, as we do here in California, emission standards where you have to go and uh, take your car in every two years for a smog test and make sure that it's in compliance, and if it's not, get rid of it or make the repairs. I mean, this is so much of a leap away from the reality that exists in so many other parts of the world. I heard a scientist say one time, if we just shut down the United States tomorrow, all 50 states cease to consume petroleum, cease to consume natural gas or coal, and we went 100% natural tomorrow, the dent that we would make in, in the so-called greenhouse gas effect or climate change would be virtually imperceptible in comparison to all of the other nations that contribute far more to pollution than we do. Totally agree, Craig. And uh, you know, I know Bjorn Lomborg is, is somebody who's done some great writing and research in this area about where we set our priorities. And that's somebody, he's a scientist that firmly believes in climate change, but just also at the same time understands that all this focus on the reduction of greenhouse gases is really taking our eye off of developing nations and, and really where our priorities should be. And related to that, you, you notice as well that there's not much in the Green New Deal about nuclear power. Right. When we look to Europe and some of the steps that they've taken around nuclear energy in France and in, in Germany, uh, you know, they're being pretty selective in AOC's office about what qualifies as renewable or so-called good, sustainable energy. And apparently nuclear does not qualify. And that really what if, if these issues are really so dire, why aren't all these uh, possible renewable energy sources on the table? 
Well, and again, I think that that really goes to the heart of the question here, and that is that this is more about idealism than it is about any any sense of re- reality. There is an appeal here at an emotional level to the voting public, uh, but not much of it is grounded in anything that has any relationship to science whatsoever. You know, the, the interesting thing is, and I want to kind of step back from this for a moment, the interesting thing about this is, and boy, does it sure make your job more challenging, because back in the day, it used to be about trying to discover what the next good idea was and how those ideas could be implemented in order in a public policy arena to improve standards of living, uh, increase the quality of life in a given community at the local level, maybe larger levels in in the state or at the national level. Uh, But you've suddenly made a shift from not just needing to have thinkers that are capable of coming up with good ideas, but also it seems, and we've touched on this in the opening remarks tonight here, there seems to be a, a victim, uh, the victim of truth in dealing with public policy. So it's not just about coming up with the good ideas and disseminating them out there and helping to create and, and shape public policy, but to do so in a day and an age when truth is sort of up for, up for grabs. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, you're right, Craig. Um, we, we have reached a place in our public discourse where uh, truth is not valued, certainly in the discussion around public policy. It's much more about these emotional triggers, if you will. And uh, as we teach here to our graduate students here at the policy school, you definitely do need to know the facts around policy. You need to have the quantitative skills to evaluate why policy A works better than policy B. But at the same time, you need to be able to connect those policy prescriptions to a particular public that you're serving. And that does take the ability to understand uh, the history and culture of where you're working. And uh, again, the pendulum has swung so far away from facts and quantitative analysis really towards these narratives is such a big word these days, and authenticity and communicating uh, around issues uh, uh, that are meant to trigger emotions, that it's, it's a very trying time uh, to be in the field of public policy these days. Is the search on to find young new minds that are eager to not only face facts, but to deal with problem-solving in a realistic fashion, not attempting to simply um, cater to the lowest common denominator out there emotionally, but actually put forward public policy ideas that, that have a little bit of uh, uh, gravitas to them, that have some, uh, some weight to them? And if so, where do you find the next generation of public policy thinkers and makers? Well, we're finding a lot of them in, in great undergraduate programs. You know, a lot of my job is is first letting uh, undergrads and young professionals know that the field of public policy, especially the way that we teach it here in Malibu, is very, about, very much about preparing public leaders that have the quantitative skills to know how policy works and to be able to analyze policy, but also can speak from a historical perspective, and especially working here in the United States, to know the founding principles, to know why the American project, if you will, was created the way it was, and and what are the things that can be best used to frame public policy in a way the public can accept. Always remember, there's a public in public policy. Uh, That's what we teach here, and again, it's a 
It's the thing that gets me up in the morning is to see the next generation of public leaders go through our program and and to continue to reach out to uh, future students. And as you point out, framing public policy not in a values vacuum, but rather in an environment that that pays homage, so to speak, to the 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 history of the ideals of our nation, the principles of our founding fathers, the the historical Judeo-Christian context in which so much of our public policy was created by the founding fathers, to carry that on, not just as a nod to history, but realizing the value, the importance of the ideals that create this platform that ultimately does protect the public in public policy. Pete, if folks want to get more information, maybe they'd like to take a trip down to Malibu. They're they're considering entering this arena, and they'd like to come down and tour the campus, get more information. What's the best way to do that? Well, thanks, Craig. The the website here is uh, simply public policy, one word, dot pepperdine, dot edu. And through that, you can uh, certainly learn a little bit more about the admissions and application process and, and even schedule a visit here uh, to come see us down here on our beautiful Malibu campus. And if you talk to Pete directly and use my name, he might even give you a personal tour. Uh, you probably need to pay $100 along with that because my name didn't get you very far. But <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, Pete, we sure appreciate the time today, and I hope listeners uh, will take you up on that generous offer to come down, tour the campus, and you can start by simply getting more information. Go online to publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Um, it really is the next generation in uh, public policy thinkers and shapers of the American ideal into the future. And I tell you what, the need as uh, Pete pointed out, for people who can understand it and apply it in the historical context of the the, the framers of our Constitution, uh, becoming ever more critical today than ever before. Again, more information about Pepperdine University and the uh, public policy school there, go to publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and also Senior Fellow at the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. Five, I did it again, didn't I? And I'm looking at the clock. Just can't get this time change thing out of my mind. 6.33, or if you use one of those hourglasses with sand in it, you just make it up. 6.33 somewhere on the clock, not necessarily mine or yours. With a look at traffic, Michael Bennett, what's going on? Rescue me. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How many believers today, maybe maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself, you can tell people what you believe, you just can't tell them why. We're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest, certainly a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. here on KFAX, senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland and Alistair. Great to have you on the program. Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's, a, it's a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, <laughs> the Lord has done some amazing things over the course of the last three decades. Could, could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your, your wife and young family all that time ago that, that the Lord would have taken you in this direction? No, I, I honestly couldn't. And uh, it seems in some ways as though it was only yesterday. Time has gone by so quickly, as you say. And yet uh, these have been great and privileged years. And 
I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all. It's been a peculiar joy to, uh, first of all, serve this congregation and have them be so long-suffering as to put up with me for three decades. And uh, <laughs> and then the radio program on top of that is a, is a, is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are uh, humbled by and don't take for granted. Well, and we don't take it for granted either, Alistair, because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so, more and deeper into the arena of a, a Christian apologetics, of which, my goodness, if there was ever a day and time when we needed Christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within, this is it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I was listening to your introductory comments, and uh, I, I agree with you entirely. And uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault, if there if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, uh, Christian people, uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors, because our role is to prepare God's people for works of ministry, and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation and. Uh, so uh, we don't want to chide ourselves too much, but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented uh, in uh, the culture here in America, particularly in, and expressly so just in the last few days. Well, and certainly, you know, I think all of us perhaps begrudgingly can agree that there have been um, areas lacking in the modern-day American pulpit. But that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this, too. And I think about uh, a wonderful focus that you bring. I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson, Name Above All Names. And I just, for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon him, and to meditate on how great he is. Then Alistair continues, Being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action, rather than meditation, is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in, in the church in specific and in our society at large, that, that certainly summarizes it. Well, yeah, I think it's a. <laughs> I think it sounds so good. I'm pretty sure that must be Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> but it's right on the mark because we we don't ponder the word the way we used to. No. And to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of God's grace that that God would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so, and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf. Such a greater love mankind has never known. And and I think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we've it, we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that. And I imagine if we would recapture that ability, how the church could turn the world upside down. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you know if you take the average person coming to church, they 
they're not asking the question, where is Jesus? They're asking, where am I? Mm. And uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of Scripture and even the way in which uh, the Bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are, you know, sort of immediately appealing, but they don't have any long-lasting value. They're not going to stand uh, in the in the challenges of, of uh, time when a culture as, as ours turns increasingly secular and uh, the Christian church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in, in the culture, which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche, at, at least until this point in time. How much of this really pivots on the church, its strength, its understanding of God's Word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of of culture and society at large? Well, you know, church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that uh, that the collapse of the church has always been internal. You know, it, it has always been able to handle the, the challenges of persecution, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've They've rallied to the challenge, um, but but the real danger is the the danger of a sort of internal uh, erosion and a, a collapse in confidence, a loss of confidence in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself. And again, many many people who pay lip service to to Jesus uh, will be uh, really. Uh, struggling to to stand up to the, the the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus, that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus, that there is only one name by which men and women may be saved, and that is in the name of Jesus. And the, the, the drift in culture in, in our um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history is so dominant that... Uh, it, it's absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ uh, really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man in, uh, or a, mo- a woman in Christ really is. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Pastor Alistair Begg with us on the program. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ as our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Big on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. The broadcast weekday mornings at 730 right here on KFAX. You know, we hear these days, Alistair, churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms, uh, on the pulpit rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis, preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about 
the need to count the cost of what it truly needs to, means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something that is that seems to be glaringly absent. Well, yes, I, you know, I think um, it's always dangerous to generalize, and I know you understand that too. Um, yeah, I think we've gone through a real a, a real period of time in which, you know, that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness. And, um, you know, when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale Divinity students, uh, uh, James Stewart, in, in 1952, uh, he warned them, 52, which is 61 years ago, about what he referred to as a, a, a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity, which he said was absolutely useless. Mm. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of the one of the encouraging things for me as somebody who's now moved into, you know, um, my 60s is to see how many young men, though, are coming through in uh, various places in the country and who have really fastened on to the idea that... Uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus, but we must just state them as they are. And, of course, to fail to do so really sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the, I mean, in, in first century Corinth, Paul knew that, uh, you know, if he gave the people what they wanted to, to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. Uh, but the one thing that uh, uh, they were unprepared for is, um, you know, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as we look at society today, uh, Western culture, there still seems to be a desire and interest in spiritual things. I, I think that sense of, of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it. And we head out to many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and and yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a strong spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and present the gospel that people can look at and say, wow, there's real power behind this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. I, you know, we have an Australian friend who visits here, you know, every few years, and I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning, you know, sort of American Christianity, and of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen, but uh, <laughs> he... He, you know, he said that he, he he sensed a tone in American Christianity which was, which was a tone of admonition, rather than a tone of mission, so mm. that we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong, uh, you know, in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings, and I think it is an important thing to realize that uh, Jesus never ever. Um, and he never deviated from the clarity of his message, and yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which uh, we ought to be prepared to to speak to people on the 
on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to a great degree in the sense, Alistair, that I think of the the wave of evangelicalism getting involved in the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do. And yet, oftentimes, it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly the evidence of the um, uh, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days proves that. Yet at the end of the day, the real power is the, is the changed heart. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we do want to make sure that, that each of us are seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for uh, you know, moral rectitude and for, for biblical values and so on. But um, you know, I, I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to... Well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time I think that the moral majority and uh, and that whole movement is you know is is coming to the fore and doing what it's done and you know it's gone all the way around. But you know, I think we have to say that actually it really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now. Uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than um, uh, a testimony to to immorality and to the the the, um, the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and labored for. And I actually am quite excited about it, though, Craig. I I'm not uh, despondent. I'm not wringing my hands. I I think that. There are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church. Mm. If we if we recognize that, uh, as we must, that God is sovereign over these things, that he is the one who sets people up and he is the one who brings them down. Um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum, and therefore our voice must be heard. But we have to recognize, too, that, you know, our view of the world is is a much larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, Savior, but he is an ascended king, that he rules over the cosmos, and that the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which, of course, challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic, uh, which, of course, is, you know, uh, both both perspectives are prevalent in, in our contemporary society. So that really takes us back then to the centrality of his lordship, and maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church. As much as it's easy to become dismayed by these events, morally, politically, even economically, that's been occurring in our country and in, in sort of the, the micro and globally in the macro, to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and, and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things, then I think God can indeed have us in the position where he can better use us to influence culture and society around us. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like uh, 
uh, you know, the 18th century awakening with Whitfield. Yes. You've, you, all, you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke. And he combined, as did Spurgeon in Victorian England, um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds, so that both of them were engaged in in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages, and yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living that that uh, cares for the, for those who are least and last and left out. If there could be one singular message that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior, what would that be? Wow. Oh, well, I, I think. I, if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I, I think to fully understand that, you know, when Paul says one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that, that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion. He's talking about being a, an expression of his identity, that what he's saying there is that this, that this Jesus, as the apostles did post-Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, uh, God has made him both Lord and King. And therefore, I have no freedom to believe anything other than what he teaches me. And what he teaches me is left for me in the Scriptures. And I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that for which, uh, to which I'm called. And that then, you know, impacts every area of our lives, uh, our vocation, uh, our sexuality, uh, our marriages, uh, our singleness, whatever it might be. And, you know, then then we have an opportunity to uh, to speak to people. And, and often, uh, you know, the, the attractiveness of it uh, ought to be found in the loveliness of Christ, mm. the compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ. And I think so often... If you if you take for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way, and a few crazy people have have led to it, but but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people, uh, as opposed to uh, a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians. Uh, they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for, there's silence. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, I you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a, what a conversation starts to, may I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't, he, he eventually gets to the point, you know, when he asks her to call her husband and and she admits that you know she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover, but that's not what that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning you know her uh, her multiple relationships. He he starts by uh, simply engaging her in conversation. 
Hey, we as the church can learn a lot from that example, that we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation and, of course, ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple, to count the cost. We sure appreciate your time, your faithfulness to the Lord, and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry. Thanks so much again for the time. There's Pastor Alistair Begg. Again, uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 730 here on KFAX. And uh, wow, 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in uh, Cleveland. And what a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this. If Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note? It's not about puffing people up, but, you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference, that what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for His Word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org, truthforlife.org. Our thanks again to Alistair Begg for being with us. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.